We come to the close of our 14-part series in the Minor Prophet Zechariah. We titled that series, The Prophet of Hope. And if you're just tuning in, you might wonder why, because chapter 14 is pretty heavy, pretty dark. But I think you will see that it does end, yet still, as many of the other chapters have, uh, with a theme of, of great hope and consolation. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's page 799 and the one provided in the pew. Let's give a careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word from Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on, the day of, on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Henanel to the king's wine presses and it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction Jerusalem shall dwell in security and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths and on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, 
and there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feasts of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall, be no, longer, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts, on that day. As far the reading of God's life-giving word to us. Well, it's Reformation Lord's Day. Reformation Day proper is tomorrow. We have the opportunity to commemorate that with the lecture at Emmanuel Fellowship. But, of course, it is common for believers in our circles on Uh, Days like today to make reference to that great reformer, Martin Luther. But just to ensure that we have a a proper estimation of this important figure and that we don't esteem him too highly, that we remember even as good reformed people that he was simply used by God and was not God, just to remind you of that, I want to read to you his commentary on Zechariah chapter 14. The whole thing. It's not very long. Here in this chapter I give up. For I have no idea what the prophet is talking about. Good old Martin Luther for you. The concluding chapter of Zechariah has been uh, acknowledged by many commentators, not just Martin Luther, uh, to be the most difficult portion in an already fairly difficult book. And what makes it particularly Troublesome for interpreters is figuring out when the events, the horrific events described in this chapter take place. And the different views that people have on that usually align with their eschatological views, if you're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial and so forth. But if you recall uh, from the last few weeks, especially as we've looked at chapters 12 and 13, now 14, we've said there's a, a helpful clue, a helpful phrase that, that helps us understand the events and when they take place. And it's that phrase, on that day, or in that day. And it's how chapter 14 begins. Behold, a day is coming. It's how chapter 14 ends. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And it's repeated throughout as well. In biblical language, this the day is the last day. The day of the Lord. The day of judgment. The day of consummation, the the day when Christ returns and makes all things new. This is both, that day is both the next stage in redemptive history and the final stage in redemptive history. In, In terms of what the prophets look forward to, the Messiah, he has come, he has died, He's been raised, he's ascended. The only thing left is for him to return. The only thing left is for him to come again. Because that's the next thing, the next chapter, the next stage in redemptive history, sometimes the Bible will speak of this event as though it were to happen at any moment. 
Hebrews 1-2 says, we are in these last days. In these last days, we're already there. There's nothing left except the return. It's the next thing. But also, since it's the last thing, the final thing to happen, sometimes the Bible will speak of it as though it's very far away. And so that's part of uh, the trouble uh, with interpreting various uh, apocalyptic passages in Scripture. But we can at least know that when we're talking about that day, we're talking about the return of Christ when the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in. Uh, And here's something for us to keep in mind as we consider Zechariah 14. That day will come. The end will come. Uh, That's a very clear and a very um, important lesson that we can learn from a confusing chapter like this. This is the first thing I want us to see from chapter 14. The end will come. Uh, Have you ever wondered why the Bible speaks of the last days so often? By one count, nearly 150 chapters in the Bible deal with the end times. Is is there a reason, perhaps, for that? If the Spirit of God took such care in inscribing for us descriptions of the end, does that mean that we should maybe care about it? Is there something instructive Uh, for us in knowing that this world isn't just going to keep on spinning ad nauseum, but actually there is an expiration date. We don't know it, but there is a date set for the end of all things. Is that important? Is that helpful for us to know? And the answer is yes. Why? Well, let me give you at least three reasons why it's important to know that the end is coming. First, knowing that the end is coming enforces proper priorities. It enforces proper priorities. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 29, 30, and 31, the Apostle Paul says that the time remaining for us here is very short, and therefore we should prioritize like it. He says, let those who deal with the world as the, live as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Since Christ is coming again, since this world is fleeting since it's passing away. You should live for the world that isn't passing away. Live for the world that will last forever. Those who live in light of the end of this place are those who are least likely to gain the whole world and yet lose their souls. Who are the people who do that? They're the ones who think this world is all that there is. Right? But if you recognize, no, this world will come to an end, and we're actually made for another world entirely, you will have proper priorities. So a chapter like Zechariah 14 jolts us awake, and it, and it makes us ask the question, am I ready for the end? Am I prepared? Am I prioritizing properly? A second, knowing that an end is coming, it not only enforces proper priorities, but it encourages personal piety. The Apostle Peter, in particular, seemed to think this was an important aspect of knowing that we live in the last days. Consider 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 11. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth And the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be 
but those who live lives of holiness and godliness. So what's the connection between eschatology and ethics, between knowing that there's an end and living a pious or a godly life? Well, because we know that the end involves judgment. Not just for the world, but for us too, right? Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we did in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear, not just non-Christians. Everybody must appear because we know that day is coming. On that day there will be judgment. We should live upright and holy lives. We don't know when he will return, but when he comes, what will we be doing? What will you be doing when he, when he finds you on that last day? Second Peter 3.14 tells us, Therefore, beloved, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Knowing that the end is coming encourages piety. Finally, thirdly, it engenders a profound peace. Knowing that the end is coming engenders in our heart, produces in our heart a profound peace, a peace that that we can't find anywhere else. Jesus said, right, that he gives us a peace, not the peace that the world gives. How is, this, how is there a peace in knowing that this world is not all that there is? Well, even think about um, the things that are going on right now, uh, the, the headlines, the, the things you read on Facebook, the things that discourage you about the world, the things that make you say, well, back in my day, right, Think about that, those things that come to mind. There is no guarantee the world is going to go back to your day. No guarantee that this world is going to get any better. The Bible does not promise us that. And you can campaign all you want. You can post articles on Facebook to inform or to inflame all you want. But there is no guarantee that a new law, a new policy, a new politician will change the trajectory of this world. We're not promised that the issues of suffering or injustice or violence or moral confusion and chaos will be solved here. And that is discouraging, and it's particularly discouraging if you've been wronged in life, if, if you've been sinned against, and that's all of us. But while we're given no such guarantee of justice in, in this world, we are given the guarantee of justice in the world to come where every wrong will be made right. Knowing that there will be an end to this place of sin is a comfort. That should bring you peace. It should bring you a sense of relief knowing that you don't need to fix everything here. It should bring you a sense of peace knowing that if something bad happens to you and and your enemies don't get their comeuppance, this world isn't the final say on that. God will right every wrong. Justice will win out. Righteousness will win out. And so what does that mean for us in the meantime? It means we trust the God who stands outside of this world, who holds this world in his hands, and the God who keeps our tears in a bottle, who keeps account of our tossings, who writes down all of our troubles in his book. Why does the psalm speak like that, Psalm 56? Why is it helpful? Why is it comforting and assuring to know that God's writing down our our troubles and our tossings. It means he's not going to forget the bad things that we've experienced in life, the sorrows that we've experienced. 
He remembers them, and he will write them on the last day. If this world never ended, that wouldn't happen. It's knowing that this world of sin is coming to an end and a world of righteousness and peace is coming that brings us that great assurance. So, why does the Bible talk about the end times so much? Why are there confusing chapters like that of Zechariah 14? Well, for at least these reasons, if not for many others. But it at least means that as we look at this chapter, even if we don't know what it all means, we know why it's all there. It's there to enforce the proper priorities, to engender a personal piety, and to give us a profound peace. The end will come, and we need peace uh, when it comes. We, th- th- that peace is really important to cling to because the, the end that Zechariah describes is pretty dark. And so uh, we learn a second lesson here. First is that the end will come. But then as we dig into our text more specifically in our chapter, we learn that with the end, trials will come. The end will come, trials will come. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Behold, a day is coming when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile. The picture is grim. Notice that the enemy against God's people is immeasurably massive. All the nations. There are no neutral parties in this end times conflict. It is a world war in a sense that we have never, ever seen or will ever see until this day comes. Israel, the people of God, uh, contra munda, against the world. So where's that peace that we talked about? How is this good news? Why should we ever pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, if when he comes at the end of all things, it means trial? Well, Richard Phillips draws our attention to the connection between this line and the conclusion of the previous chapter. Look at chapter 13 and verse 9. uh, Verse. Let's start at verse 8, actually. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds of the people shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And this one-third, this remnant, he says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. The trial that comes, the trial that increases in the last days, is not meant to, to destroy us, to ruin us, but to refine us. It's not to discourage God's people, but rather to make them stronger. That's the point of any trial in the Christian life. Another place where Peter talks about the end times in his epistles at the very beginning of of 1 Peter in chapter 1. And this is what he says there in verses 6 and 7. Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise of and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the return of Jesus Christ, when he reveals himself from the heavens. Our trials are preparing us for the end, and they're preparing us by purifying us. Trials will come, nevertheless. And so Richard Phillips says, this should prompt us to ask if we are willing to endure intense affliction as Christians. You know, it's so easy 
when we read passages like this to try to kind of spirit, spirit away everything. You know, all oh, this just represents this, this means that. There's not actually going to be an intense persecution against the church in the last days. It's not physical persecution. It's not literal. But there are Christians right now, who, today, who couldn't meet together in the way that we're meeting because they knew they would be killed if they did so. And they read a passage like Zechariah 14, and they say, I know what this is talking about. And they say, this is literal. We're experiencing it. We're in that trial right now. We're in the last days. And with the last days, with the end, will come trials. And so Richard Phillips says, are we ready? Are we willing to accept pain and humiliation for Jesus? Would we renounce the faith before suffering the fate described by Zechariah? If we are not willing to suffer in these ways for our faith, then the fact is that we cannot be Christians. Should God bring upon us in the West a true persecution, our numbers would no doubt dwindle, but his purpose of purifying the church would surely succeed. Trials will come. Zechariah quickly moves on to the next point, and that's that the Lord will come. And this is what makes our trials bearable, and that God doesn't leave us to them, uh, leave us or abandon us to them. He, he rescues us. So verses 3 and following describe the Lord coming to the aid of his people, arming himself for battle. So now in this last battle, this war to end all wars, it's all of the nations versus Israel plus God. Right? And God plus one is always a majority. I guess I said that backward. One plus God is always a majority. Israel now having God on their side doesn't need to fear all the nations. And when God comes, when he arrives, everything changes. God returning to his people face to face, dwelling again with them. It's so paradigm shifting that the way Zechariah describes it is like all of nature is upended, right? There's going to be no more frost and winter and winter will, or no more frost and winter will be like summer. There won't even be night and day anymore. This is how it's described in verses 6 and 7. How could this be describing anything other than the end of all things when God ushers in a whole new world, a world that Revelations describes like this, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. When the Lord comes, everything changes. It's all blessing. No darkness, only delight. And let's just be clear, the arrival of the Lord will be in the person of Jesus Christ. God has already come once, and he has already placed his feet on the Mount of Olives, verse 4, in the person of Jesus Christ, moments before he was killed for his people. If you remember, on that day, the earth shook. There was an earthquake, as described here in Zechariah. Rocks were split open. Matthew 27, verse 51, describes for us. And because Jesus Christ came once in that way, we can be assured, we can be confident, he will come again. Now, Spurgeon uh, believed that for the Christian, we don't know, need to wait for the second coming of Christ to receive the blessings of being with Christ. Uh, to receive all the amazing changes that are even described here in chapter 14. And to an extent, that's certainly true, that 
by faith and, and having Christ's Spirit in us now, that, that does change things for us. And so Spurgeon has an entire sermon where he just kind of riffs on the close of verse 7. At evening time, there shall be light. He, he says in that sermon, kind of like Luther, I don't really know what's going on in Zechariah 14, but I know that this is how the Lord loves to work, and it's an amazing thing when you've experienced light in a time of darkness. It's true for the church that even in her darkest moments, God, shine, God shines a light. And he did that in the darkness of the 16th century. This is what Spurgeon says, the black clouds of popery seem to have quenched the sunlight of God's love and grace upon the world in those dark, dim ages when the gospel seemed to have died out. And no doubt, Satan whispered to himself, the church's sunset has now come. But lo, at evening time it was light. God brought further the God brought forth the solitary monk that shook the world. He raised up men to be his helpers, and the sun rose in Germany, and it shines in every land. Beyond the church's experience, this is also the Christian's experience. Listen to this, dear believer, again from Spurgeon. He says, When Satan once gets the upper hand of the spirit, He neither lacks the strength nor the will or malice to torment the spirit. He's not your spirit when the devil seems to have you. Hard is that man's lot that has fallen beneath the hoof of the evil one in his fight with him. But blessed be God, the child of God is just as safe beneath the dragon's foot as he will be before the throne of grace. Did you hear that? The child of God will be just as safe beneath the dragon's foot as they will be before the throne of God. In heaven, for at evening time it shall be light, and let all the powers of earth and hell and all the doubts and fears that the Christian ever knew conspire together to molest a saint in that darkest moment. But lo, God shall arise, and his enemies be scattered, and he shall get himself the victory. Oh, for faith to believe that. Oh, for confidence in God, never to doubt him, but in the darkest moment of our sorrows, still to feel all is well with us and to say, at evening time, it shall be light. And that's because the Lord will come. And when he comes, everything changes. That will be true at the consummation. But dear Christian, if you've been converted, you know it's true right now in your heart. But when the Lord comes again, the clouds of glory, he brings something else with him, and that is victory, the final consideration tonight. We've seen that the end will come, trials will come, the Lord will come, and finally victory will come. The second half of this chapter describes the ultimate triumph of God's people over those worldwide forces. We pick up in verse 13. Uh, Well, verse 12 describes a a plague that the Lord has struck the people with. Verse 13, then a panic will fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. So the enemies are fighting against one another. And then it goes on to say that the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, gold and silver and garments in abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, whatever beasts may be in those camps, the enemies camps now listen to this verse 16 so important then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king the lord of hosts notice what verse 16 is stating the only way 
you survive in a battle against the Almighty God is by a transfer of allegiance. You are either conquered by him or converted by him. And you join his people in going up to worship him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then verses 20 through 22 in closing describes the ending triumph of God in all of his purposes in terms of holiness. That's the theme of those verses. Notice how everything, everything from uh, the horses to the silverware is declared as holy to the Lord, consecrated to him. That, that phrase there, holy to the Lord, was what was stamped on the, the headpiece of the, the priests who served in the temple. It wasn't something that everybody could claim for themselves, but now it will even be inscribed on the vanity plates of the chariots. And not in a sort of flippant way, but in a very real way. Because truly, everyone will be holy. Everything will be holy. There will be sin no more. That's described in verse 22. No longer will there be a traitor in the house of the Lord. Literally, actually, a Canaanite. The idea, though, is that there will be, uh, there will be no pagan, no heathen, nobody who's trying to pervert or pollute the worship of God anymore in his house. Everything, everywhere, will be holy. And if you're a Christian, that's your future, holiness. Do you see it? Do you, do you recognize this is where you're headed? And now here's a question for do you. Do you want it? We talk about heaven a lot. Christians often talk about longing for heaven. But usually it's because we think of it as a place that is free from pain, a place where we'll be reunited with loved ones that, that we have lost. And this is all true and this is all good. But it will also be a place of perfect holiness. Do you want it for that reason? The way we show our desire for heaven in this life is by being holy now. By being holy now. The imperative place before us is this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, perfect. Romans 12. If you want to gain heaven, you will seek to gain holiness now. That's just the reality of being a Christian. If you have the Spirit of Christ in you, He will be making you more holy, sanctifying you. You'll desire, your desire for holiness will be evident in your life. Paul says this in Philippians 3, that he... he presses for this goal of holiness, not that I've already obtained it or that I am perfect, he says, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because I belong to the Holy One, I want to live for him. I want to look like him. I want to be holy, Paul says. And I think it's, it's really sobering for you to consider tonight, brothers and sisters, if you are not interested in holiness, then you might not expect to end up in heaven. That's a serious warning. If you don't care about holiness in this world, why should you care for heaven? Holiness is heaven started now in our hearts. Do you want it? Do you long for it? Robert Trail, 17th century Scottish minister, warns us of the importance of holiness. He says, Oh, sirs, do not deceive your own souls. Holiness is of absolute necessity. 
It is not absolutely necessary that you should be great or rich in the world, but it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. It is not absolutely necessary that you should enjoy health, strength, friends, liberty, life, but it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. A man may see the Lord, a man may not see the Lord without worldly prosperity. But he can never see the Lord except that he be holy. Zechariah 14 has closed with the story of the terrifying last battle that concludes all human history. And if the Lord tarries, you and I might not be caught up in that. Um, At least not as we're found here. We would be returning with the king, as Revelation 19 describes for us. But if the Lord tarries... The last battle that you'll experience on this earth is the battle against sin in your own heart. And it's an imperative. There's no option. You must take arms up. You must take up arms in that fight, in that battle. Because the end is near. Because judgment is coming. And so we return to Peter's exhortation. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your word to us and even these passages which can confuse us or, or raise more questions than, than it seems to answer. We still have been able to come away with truths that are important for us. We ask that you would implant those in our hearts and that you would cause us uh, to, to be doers of your word, that we would live in light of the end, that we would recognize and not uh, recognize that trials will come and not crumple in fear under them, not flee, uh, but that we would know that through the trial, you will come ultimately to rescue us, and so we can take great hope and comfort, and you come to bring victory for your people, a victory that brings us out of the world of sin and into the world where all is sinless and perfect and holy. Give us a desire for that world even now. Cause us not to fall in love with the things of this place which are fading away, which will be burned up, which will dissolve. But help us to set our sights on heaven where Christ is. And knowing that when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.